Hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I'm excited to introduce my special guest to you. He is the author of The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. His name is Dr. Gary Habermas. Dr. Habermas, how are you doing today, sir? Doing well, Braden. Looking forward to this. Good yeah, time. I, yeah, I appreciate uh, you taking the time out of your day to do this. Um, I'm a fan of your work. Um, as we were talking before the uh, podcast, I uh, when I was in seminary is when I became acquainted with apologetics, and I kind of uh, became acquainted with Christian apologetics um, by necessity. I had uh, a lot of doubt at the time, and so I didn't even know what apologetics was before that. And um, But you knew what doubt was. I knew what doubt was, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I definitely knew what doubt was. And so yeah. just through um, searching for answers and things like that, I came across your book, and of course it played a, a major role in opening my eyes to, the, of course, the historicity of the resurrection, but really just the fact that the Christian faith is defensible from a rational and reasonable standpoint. Um, so I do want to, I do want to thank you for that. Um, uh, but before we get into the subject of today's uh, podcast, which is the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, uh, I thought it might be helpful for you to introduce yourself uh, for those who may not be familiar. Well, I'm Gary Habermas. My official title is Distinguished Research Professor at Liberty University. I'm chair of the philosophy department, and uh, oh, I've done over 40 books. I'd have to stop and count, but over 40. And about half of those, almost exactly half of them, are on the resurrection of Christ, our topic tonight. And there's so many, I mean, it's 20 something on the resurrection. That's just because a lot of them are debates and a lot of them are different aspects of the resurrection. So that's my first love. And my job is uh, teaching at the PhD level at, at uh, Liberty University. I'm visiting professors from other schools too, but mostly right here in the PhD program, we have a PhD in philosophy. I'm sorry. We have a PhD in theology and apologetics, and um, we're training professors, maybe a quarter to a third, maybe as high as a half of my students are already professors. They're just looking for their, you know, their crowning achievement. They have to get their, as one of my friends call it, they're they're looking for their their uh, card to get them into the uh, society of professors, i.e., their PhD. So. Awesome, awesome. So, yeah, uh, uh, so how did you uh, become a Christian, and what got you interested in uh, historical study of the resurrection? Well, I was raised in a Christian home. <clears throat> Um, was at a mainline church for my early years, uh, United Methodist Church. But then my folks moved, and we couldn't find a church where we were outside Detroit. And uh, so I started going to a German Baptist church. And we're German. So I grew up in that German Baptist church. And um, early in my life, the person who was closest to me, which was my great-grandmother at the time, died. And scholars tell you that kids formulate their ideas of death and dying uh, in one estimate between the ages of eight and 11. And I think that had a big effect on my doubt, because uh, if I'm thinking about dying, you know, I wanted to know where she was and did she go to heaven? And a number of years later, I started doubting. And and uh, I wish I could say, yeah, I studied apologetics. I wanted to 
help everybody everywhere and so on. But no, the real reason I started doing apologetics was because I had doubts like you. And, and I went through them for 10 straight years and parts of about 10 more years. So I wasn't, let's just say I was a, um, I don't know, habitual doubter for yeah. probably most of 20 years. And uh, over the years, I checked out this answer and this answer and this answer. And I thought, well, reliability of the New Testament's okay, but you know, that's, that's not going to necessarily give me Christianity. And this one's good. And yeah, Jesus claimed to be deity, but how do we know it's true? And one day I happened on the resurrection. I knew almost nothing about it. And I thought to myself, you know what? If Jesus was raised from the dead, I think that could be the foundation of Christianity. Because who in the world would he be if he was raised from the dead? What does that say about him? And the rest, as they say, is history. Because I, I said to myself, I remember the day I said it, I said to myself, um, if the resurrection's true, you get everything with it. You get the whole pie. Mm -hmm. So let's find out if the resurrection is true. And that day I launched into a study in the resurrection. It's never stopped. Wow. Thank you for sharing. Uh, before we get into kind of what you found along the way or the historical evidence, uh, I do want to ask this. Um, and I think I've heard William Lane Craig kind of uh, say some things uh, along the lines of answering this question. But one question is this. If there were no historical evidence, maybe like if all the evidence was just lost to us, yeah. could a Christian still be justified in believing in the resurrection, do you think? Well, now, the, I was going to go in one direction until you added the word justified. You know, in philosophy, justification is a technical term. Okay. And it has to do with words like Alvin Plantinga's term warrant and things like that. Are we warranted in believing? And it's sort of like you get this idea between it could be true, but how would we know it's true? Mm -hmm. We could have a million people all believe on faith without a single reason, and they could all be right. Right. In fact, the people who think you can show the resurrection is true would say that all the million of them are right without evidence. So, I mean, I think there is something such as conviction. I know where Bill's going. I've read his, his things on this. And um, I think he's right that Christians can be convicted, and rightly so. But can you be convicted with evidence? And that's a little different issue. I would never, ever, I want to be real clear, I would never, ever put anybody down who says— yeah, I'm glad there's good evidence, but I don't need it. Mm -hmm. And when I hear it, I feel good. I'm buoyed up in my faith for a few days, but don't need it. Um, that's fine. I don't I don't sit there and say, oh, how naive or how silly or boy, you don't know. Or I don't even think that. Mm -hmm. If anything, I might think that's very nice to be like that. Yeah. <laughs> but so I think I think people can be right in their belief, but evidencing it is another matter. And in the New Testament, they evidenced it, and they use what we would commonly call evidence of different sorts today. So I think we're on really good grounds, because I really do think that we are doing way more sophisticated today, because the critics are way more sophisticated, but we're doing what they did in the early church when we evidence this event. Sure. So uh, in your book, The the Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, uh, who— uh, uh, Dr. Michael Icona was also a co-author. He's also been on the show before. Uh, you talk about these minimal facts for the resurrection. 
right. minimal minimal historical facts for the resurrection. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought it might be useful to start with. What do we mean by minimal facts? What does that qualification minimal mean? Uh, well, sometimes I tell people uh, that minimal facts means a lowest common denominator base for what we believe. Can you prove your view in any subject? It could be science. It could be, you know, you name it. Can you prove your view with the full cartel of data? And you obviously think you can. But can you do it with less? And can you do it with less? And can you do it with less? And what's the least you can? So often what I do when I'm at state university campuses is I'll hold um, a, uh, a New Testament like this. I'll hold, I'll hold this up and I'll say, hey, if this Bible right here is true, and, and I have atheists, I'm sometimes supported by atheists at the state universities. They, they, have, they have me and they sponsor me. It's really something. Yeah. And I'll say, okay, folks, if it's inspired that Jesus raised, and they'll go, even the skeptics will go, well, yeah, if it's inspired, he's raised. But uh, that's a big if. Okay. Now, what if it's this Bible? And it's not inspired, but it's really reliable. And they'll say, I think, you know, a good response. It depends on what parts are reliable and what parts aren't. And I'll go, all right. But what about this New Testament? And in this New Testament, Rudolf Boltmann from the last generation and critics say there's no evidential basis, there's no historical basis, believe it by faith, we don't have any grounds for belief. On this Bible, where much of it is mythology, or with the Jesus Seminar, where uh, you know, 80 to 90%, depending on what you do with the colored uh, verses they use, uh, 80 to 90%, Jesus never said them. If that's the Bible, is there a resurrection? And you see everybody in the crowd, Christians and non-Christians, shaking their head, no, go, no, if that's the Bible, we lose. And then I'll start by saying, here's what I mean. If this, if this unreliable Bible is true, if the New Testament is not reliable, Jesus is still raised from the dead. That's the minimal facts view, because what I'm saying is, and I'll say it in a sentence, I think we can take the data which critical scholars, the most critical scholars are willing to accept. And with that data alone, we can show that the most likely explanation is that Jesus is raised from the dead. So I call it minimal facts. Sometimes I call it lowest common denominator because we can use a few bricks, if you will, a few facts and build a wall with them. And that's what we're trying to do. Sure. So I think in the book, and uh, it's been a it's been a, a little while since I've uh, cracked it open, but I've read it a, num a few times and often reference it. But I think in the book, you mentioned that, uh, like, you only take facts that X percentage of scholars right. in the field agree to, and I think that's kind of what you mean by minimal facts. What what per right. what percent? So in the book, I think you do like we said. Uh, is it four plus one? Yeah, four plus one in the book, and I often do six plus one today. Okay. Yeah, and the reason we get that plus one is you're talking about, about definition now. So let me give a definition sure. of the minimal facts. Um, not the other. I was doing the three Bibles and how practical. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, sure. But on the definition, uh, I have two criteria for minimal facts. Mike uses the same thing. And we're not the only two. Other people are adopting this right now. In fact, I've been told by somebody who does not like the minimal facts argument that it is the most popular argument at present for the reliability of the New Testament. It's a minimal facts argument. Okay, well, 
if it works, if it's true, it's true. But basically the two criteria are these. Criteria number one, I will use no fact that is not evidenced by a number of other facts that show it to be historical. So if you can picture uh, kind of a, a fact in the middle and maybe 10 of them surrounding it, pointing to that one, those 10 arguments show that one fact to be historical. And and then they have 10 evidences. It's just so strong. That is why the second part of the definition is true. And that's why virtually every critical scholar in the world, we think the number is over 90%. Over 90% of professional critical scholars, I'll define that in a second, but they all allow those six facts. They won't all allow the plus one, which is the empty tomb, but they'll allow the six facts. And they'll argue, okay, if you give me the six, I think I can show you the resurrection happened. So the idea is six facts, each of which is pointed to, it's almost like something in the middle with about actually more than 10. There's more than 10 for each one. In fact, this might surprise you. If I use that six plus one, six plus the empty tomb, and the only reason we call the empty tomb plus one is because it's got as many evidences as any of the rest of them. There's over 20 critical evidences for the empty tomb. By critical, I mean you can get these evidences for the empty tomb having critical presuppositions in the New Testament. And so the empty tomb qualifies in the most important category, which is evidence. But the number of scholars who allow it does not hit 90%. It's more like 70 or 75. And since that's the weaker criterion, like if nobody admits these facts tomorrow, I'm still going to have all the evidences that say it's true. And that's the most important thing. So I think we're justified in the six plus one type scenario. But in those seven facts alone, six plus one, there are over 100 arguments from a critical viewpoint not saying, well, I got this verse here, and you got to let me quote this verse because John 3, 16 is really good. That's going to be one of my evidences. That's not the way I argue. And there's over 100 critical considerations that indicate the truth of those seven facts. Over 100. That's an incredible amount of data, and that's why nobody argues about these six reliable facts. Now, they may say, well, wonderful, but the resurrection doesn't follow from those six. Oh, well, then let's talk. But they don't debate the six or seven facts. Gotcha, gotcha. <clears throat> so whenever you um, quote these percentages like uh, 90%, because this is often people will will uh, question this. If, if I yep. say to them, look, the overwhelming consensus of scholars, professional scollars is like 90, 90% will say this. Um, where do you get that number from? And and how do you how do you study that 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 amount of of scholarship? Yeah, well, I started. Well, let, let me go back to my dissertation. I wrote my dissertation at Michigan State University in 1976, and I did the historicity of the resurrection for my doctor's uh, doctoral dissertation. Half my committee members, I would estimate. I didn't go around asking them what they believed. But about half my committee members believed in the resurrection and half did not. And what the ones that did not believe it said to me was, hey, we don't care if you believe the resurrection. 
and you don't have to convince us it's true. We just don't want you to say it's true because your favorite verses say it's true. You've got to go after these facts the way critics go after them. Now, that, this is the critics telling me I have to do it the way they do it if I'm going to get to a state university. They said, that's fair. And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. They said, you know, basically we're liberal here, but we're liberal in a good sense. And I'm right. thinking, what does liberal in a good sense mean? And they said, we'll let you have your argument. You'll get your degree if you pull it off. But you've got to pull it off using rules of research, not what your church says. And I was just too willing to agree with that. So that's how it got started. And so I did, did a head count. Well, when I finished my dissertation in 76, obviously no books were copyrighted after 76 because the book, the dissertation was published. So years later in the 90s, I started thinking, you know, I'm getting a little rusty. I need to go back and update my bib. And I thought it was going to be just for me. So I started collecting everything I could find in the resurrection print, um, pretty much copyrighted after 1975. And my list now is up to over 4,000 sources from just 1975 on. And the majority of those, I, I check sources, maybe a good analogy would be, I check sources the way a news network on TV would would do a a, a survey. I saw one of the, the the elections the other night, one of the primaries, where a a winner was named after only six percent of the vote in, yeah. because they knew where the key precincts were and what people were going to grant. I do resurrection about that same way. I slant the data toward the skeptics. So if I know you're an unbeliever, and I know you're going to give me naturalistic theory. And I want to know, I want your naturalistic theory of my study. So I will actually slant toward the unbelievers in two ways. Number one, for everybody else, I require them to be a scholar with a specialized degree in New Testament, theology, classics, history, philosophy, archaeology. You have to be accredited in one of the fields. But for skeptics, they don't always have that very commonly, the skeptics are way out of their field, or they don't have terminal degrees. That happens almost all the time. And so I still count a lot of their people, and I count their naturalistic theories. So if anything, I'm slanted toward the, the critics. But I did a head count. And, and here's just one way to answer your question. If the best attested fact is that uh, Jesus' disciples had experiences that they believed were appearances of the risen Jesus, if that's a fact we want to investigate, here's what I would ask you. Out of this many sources, how many don't concede that? That's a very, very small number. Or you could say, how about Jesus' death by crucifixion? Uh, okay, how many specialists in the field? Now, I'm talking about people who are trained in this area, not people who are in other religions, um, what another kind of not a religious scholar, what they believe, but they're not trained I'm asking you, what do specialists, they could be atheist New Testament scholars, they could be agnostic New Testament scholars, they could be the strongest skeptics in the world, they could be the Jewish New Testament scholars, but what do they say about crucifixion? Well, by the way, a book just came out on Jewish views of resurrection, and it counts non-Christian Jews, and virtually everybody believes in the crucifixion. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. How many out of hundreds and hundreds of scholars who would not allow the crucifixion of Jesus. And you can start numbering these things. There's very few among, I have to say it again, among the accredited scholars. I had a well-known skeptic say to me, 
Well, if I just count my buddies, I'm going to go past your number of how many don't believe this. That's just the point. I don't count your buddies. I don't count the guys that are the beer drinkers. I'd nothing wrong with drinking beer, but what I'm saying is I don't count the guys that gather in the in the pub downtown and just talk and tell the Christians they're crazy. I don't count the guys who work in their parents' basement and never went to college and they're just going off on everybody and they're angry. I don't count those guys because they have an opinion, just like I don't count Christians who are in the same class who don't aren't studied. But of the studied New Testament people, I don't care what view they take. You could be an atheist, and people, oh, you're slanted toward evangelicals. Ha <laughs> you should see the books I read, and most of my people are skeptics. Most of the people I use are skeptics. They don't question the crucifixion, and they don't question the disciples' experiences. That's how you get a minimal fact. Sorry for that long answer, but— No, that's okay. That's, sure. that's helpful. Uh, uh... One thing I was wondering is, is there a place that people can see uh, your study of the survey of New Testament scholars? Yeah, okay. There's a there's a short answer and a long answer. The short answer is I have a number of books and a number of journal articles where I give partial lists of who allows these things. Now, I've got a book called um, the, the Risen Jesus and Future Hope, and in the material on resurrection, I think— Boy, don't hold me to this, Braden. I'd have to go back, and I think I have 20 endnotes with 20 or more sources each. Yeah. And I think I have a half dozen endnotes, or at least three or four endnotes, with over 50 scholars in the, in the list. And I try really hard to get a cross-section of atheists, skeptics, Jewish New Testament scholars, uh, conservatives, liberals— Moderates. I really try hard to get a to get a, um, a range, and so I think when I've done that and gotten you know many many more sources than I need, I think it's pretty clear. I've had dialogues with critics too, and we start by putting the facts up on the board, and they they often will start and go, "Yeah, I don't have any problem with your facts, so let's go ahead and go on." And that's how the dialogue starts with yeah. them conceding the data. <clears throat> so, yeah. So for the it's audience, pretty, it's pretty well established. Yeah. So for the audience, it, uh, just to regurgitate what you just said is basically just whenever you look at uh, people with PhDs in the field, whether they be atheists, Christians, uh, conservative Christians, uh, liberal Christians, Jewish, agnostic, yep. Yep. perhaps even Muslim, I don't know, but uh, anybody, anybody with a, a relevant PhD in the field. They all are, almost all are going to agree on these facts. So what what are what are the what are the six plus one now? Okay, now the plus one is going to be the empty tomb. And again, the reason for, I'll just get that one out of the way first. The sure. reason it's a plus one is there are over twenty reasons to believe in the empty tomb, using and this is important using only critical data. I don't say, for example, okay, argument number one. The tomb was empty because Mark 16.1 says so. Yeah. I would never argue like that. You know, Bart Ehrman, Bart Ehrman uses more verses than just about any uh, evangelical. Bart Ehrman's the best-known critic in North America. He calls himself an atheist. He's a New Testament specialist, Princeton Seminary, Ph.D. He qualifies for what a scholar is. And he's got a little part in one of his books where he says, why do I quote these verses? Do I say things are true because they're in the Bible? He said, absolutely not. I don't even believe the Bible's inspired. The things I say are true from the New Testament are things that are evidenced critically. Yeah. And that's exactly the same method that that I would use. So, but the plus one is the empty tomb. 
And there's over 20 critical arguments for the empty tomb, but I don't have the 90-something percentile scholars. We're going to be about 70 or 75% headcount on the empty tomb from the same group of scholars. So it's a plus one. It has the more important criterion, not the lesser important one. The six I would use, Jesus died by crucifixion. His disciples had experiences that they believed were appearances of the risen Jesus. We've already mentioned those two. Three, they started proclaiming the resurrection at a very, very early date. You know, as time goes on, this date is getting earlier and earlier. In fact, today, there are a number of skeptics. Bart Ehrman, atheist New Testament scholar, he says we have a number of sources that report the disciples preaching the resurrection within one to two years after the cross. That is early. I mean, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, is often dated at plus 40 after the crucifixion. Conservatives are going to date it earlier, but about plus 40, plus 45 for Mark. So one to two years after the cross is extremely early. That's the fourth one. Fifth one, their lives were transformed as a result. They turned the world upside down and were willing to die. You can't prove all the disciples died for their faith, but you can show they were willing to die. Now, someone says, well... How do you know they're willing to die? I mean, what, you think you can read their minds? And I go, that's just, you know, you're just speaking without knowing what you're talking about. Because <laughs> you can tell somebody's willing to die not by what's on their mind, but whether they continue to earn, insert themselves into situations where they could very easily be killed. And they are sometimes, um, well, for instance, look at the list Paul gives. Three times he had 40 lashes minus one. He was in prison. He was shipwrecked. He was stoned and left for dead. Um, he gives these lists. So that's willing to die when you keep putting yourself in those uh, situations. So they were transformed to the point of being willing to die specifically for the resurrection. You go, well, how do you know they were willing to die for the resurrection? Because it was a center of faith. Without it, there's no faith. If you're going to die for your faith, you're willing to die for the resurrection, because that is what the faith is. That is the gospel. Paul says, without it, you've got nothing, and he's not the only one who says things like that. Five and six are two individuals, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, the persecutor, two skeptics. I list them separately because they're totally different situations. James is a family member who, as far as we know, very few scholars think that James was a, a believer before the resurrection. Most scholars think he became a believer when he met the risen Jesus. We even have a book, it's post-New Testament canon, but it's about 25 years later in the Gospel of John, the Gospel to the Hebrews, and it has a little narration of Jesus appearing to his brother James. And then lastly, Paul, he's the Old Testament, I, I like to say, he's the Old Testament guy with the, you know, a PhD in Old Testament who was persecuting Christians, and he's speaking from the viewpoint of being a scholar. And he came to believe in Jesus because he, too, like the disciples and like James, had experiences that they believe were appearances of the risen Jesus. So that's it. Six plus good data for the empty tomb. And like I said, a bunch of pieces of data would evidence each one of those. And so it's fair to use them in our hypothesis for the resurrection. And they had no problem with me at Michigan State using that kind of data and those kind of using this kind of conclusion. I don't, nobody on my committee that I remember, it's been a long time ago, but nobody on my committee, to my knowledge, thought I was going the wrong way, I was wrong, they couldn't believe I'm doing this, they left the committee, they were ticked, nothing like that. They all just, I, they thought I was living by historical criteria. Yeah. 
Okay, so that helps lay out the the playing field there. There there will be some, um, maybe not in scholarship, who will question these fa facts as such, um, and it's pro and it's important to give the evidence to them because it's it's probably not going to be all, all that convincing to say, well, all these scholars agree with me, and almost no relevant scholars agree with you. So uh, let's let's start with actually the plus one because. To my mind, it might be the biggest one, the empty tomb. It's the one where you're going to get the most, um, the most scholars arguing with you. Yeah, I, but, I, but like I said, to use they use my figures. You're probably going to get less than a third are going to say they don't believe in the empty tomb, mm -hmm. and and about two thirds or a little bit more than two thirds are going to argue for the empty tomb. Mm -hmm. Is Bart Ehrman one of those nowadays? I think he would dispute. No, the... he used to hold. He used to hold the empty tomb. Uh -huh. And he explains in a recent book why he's moved away from it. And um, what he basically outlines there is he used to think Jesus was buried in Joseph's tomb, and he thought there was really, really good evidence for that. Uh, it's one of Bill Craig's minimal facts. It's not one of mine, the burial. But Bart Ehrman said he used to buy the, the burial, but now he doesn't. And he kind of agrees with Dom Crossan, Dominic Crossan, that um, that it's likely that Jesus was buried like in like a rectangular hole in the ground, which is the most common way. See, the the the, the limestone tombs were basically only available in Jerusalem, so around the rest of the country, buried in a a hole in the ground, you know, is the. I don't mean they just threw a body unceremoniously in a hole. I mean they would lay them nicely in a cemetery like we do only without the you know the same kind of casket and everything yeah. else yeah. okay so uh what evidence would you lay out for the empty tomb well i i i would do over 20 critical evidences but if i talked about just a couple i'll tell you what let's just let's just mention the two to start if you want to go further that's great but okay. the, the two that critics will tell you Again, because I mean, I've done the survey. I've done the head count. I'll tell you the two that they think are the most uh, evidential. By far, the majority of critics are going to say the best evidence for the empty tomb is that the is that in all four gospels. Now, let me just stop there. Uh, we know that. Let's just say, for the sake of the argument, Mark. May have been Matthew may have used Mark, Luke may have used Mark. They 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 can know about each other, but they were not looking over each other's shoulders, and they weren't across the street from each other in Jerusalem when they were writing these things. They're spread around the Mediterranean world, and yet all four of them say the women went to the tomb. Now, in the ancient world, a woman could testify in a court of law, but there were rules. Uh, won't go into those unless you want. But but um, women were not considered very good witnesses. So when all four men say a woman or women went to the tomb, they know right away you're not putting a very good evidential foot down. And, but you know what they could have said? This, this is a good comeback, I think. Um, Luke and John both say men went to the tomb, plural. Now, John names them, Peter and John minimum. Luke just says some of the men went to the tomb. Now, why couldn't you, if you're afraid about the women, and you think they're bad witnesses, why can't you say, yeah, our men went to the tomb and checked it out? Because that's a true story. 
That's a true story to say the men went. Why do you say the women went? Well, biggest reason, because that's the way it went down. That's the way it happened. And so they're telling the story the way you're supposed to tell the story, what happened, not by who can testify in a court of law, who's going to make the bigger splash. What about Peter, man? Did, did Peter see this? I want Peter to see it because he's yeah. the big critic, you know. So that's a good one. The fact that women are unanimously chosen in the gospel. Secondly, if you're going to teach the resurrection, you could preach it in Antioch. You could you could preach in Alexandria. You could preach it in Rome. You could preach it somewhere else, Greece. But don't preach it in Jerusalem if that body's still in the tomb. When you tell everybody the tomb is empty and somebody can stroll down to the tomb and see if there's a body in it, you better be ready to handle the criticism if the guy says, hey, y'all, I found, a, I found a body here. Now, I can't really see who it is. He's pretty badly decomposed. But there are, there are holes in the hands and the feet, and uh, there's a body there. Well, I think what's good to remember is if you find a body in the tomb, the New Testament's wrong. The New Testament did not teach there's a body, but we don't know who it is. Yeah. New Testament teaches there's no body, nobody in the tomb. So it's only if the tomb is empty that you can preach that. And in Jerusalem, anybody can walk to that tomb and verify or falsify it for themselves. Now, a lot of critics will say, ha, 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 big mistake here. We didn't know the empty tomb until the Gospels came out. The first Gospels, 40 years later, that story could have gotten started. And nobody would have seen the story back then. However, I said earlier that we have a bunch of sources that critics even date for one to two years after the cross. And we have an early source or two for the empty tomb from just that early period. So those are two good evidences, the women and Jerusalem. We have other ones. The third one is multiple attestation. The two heads are better than one rule. We have about, well, we have as many as three to six sources for the empty tomb, independent sources. And that's, and by the way, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't count for three. Uh, if, if Matthew and Mark, if Matthew and Luke counted, used Mark, if they did, that counts for one source, Mark. So when I say three to six, that's that's pretty that's a lot of sources when you don't you're not using each one of the four gospels separately. Yeah. So that gives you a little start. That's what I would say for empty tomb. There are many others. We can go other places about that's three. You have women, Jerusalem, and multiple independent sources for the empty tomb. Sure. And, and the fact that they were early. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh okay, let's um let's talk about early, this. Early yeah. you're right. Early's crucial. Yeah. Let's talk about the uh, the lives transformed, and, and you could probably dovetail straight into Paul and James there, and then we'll move on. I mean, we obviously can't talk about uh, all the different um, evidences for these things. Of course, you can read Dr. Habermas's books on this if, if you want to check that out, and I will leave links in the description to those. But let, let's talk about lives transformed and kind of dovetail into Paul and James as, as briefly or as long as you'd like. Sure. Well, when you're starting to talk, before we go to Paul and James, if you're starting to talk about the earliest proclamations, what Bart Ehrman and others use? Like if, there, if a listener says, Bart Ehrman thinks there are sources that go back to one to two years after the cross? Actually, in his book, Does Jesus Exist? He makes that comment. Either he'll say very, very early, or he'll say one to two years after the cross. He'll say that 
maybe 10 times. So he's not trying to hide it. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it's quite early. Now, if you say, what is an example of an early source? The, the, now, this is going to, it's not easy to pack, unpack this quickly. But right now, there are two sets of arguments that establish things early. One is called the early creeds in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there are dozens of little passages that are recorded for the first time in the books, usually the epistles. They're recorded for the first time, but they predate them by, I mean, often over 20 years. For example, 1 Thessalonians is probably the oldest book in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians dates from about exactly, according to critics, 50 A.D., That's plus 20. That's 20 years after the cross. And in 1 Thessalonians, Jesus is called very lofty divine names, like Lord. Lord may be the loftiest name in in the New Testament for Jesus, because in the Old Testament, in the the Septuagint, the Old Testament translation into Greek, from, from Hebrew and a little Aramaic into Greek, Lord was the equivalent, Lord was the translation, I should say, for Jehovah. So Lord is a very lofty term. And when when if when First Thessalonians shows up, uh, he's already called these high titles, Jesus is. But how would the wouldn't you have to stop and tell the Thessalonians, these are these are Gentiles. Wouldn't you have to stop and tell them what Son of God means, what Lord means, what what uh, Messiah means? So the argument is these early creeds that are in First Thessalonians, that are other places, they were familiar with the earliest proclamation. And that's what uh, Ehrman's talking about when he says some of the sources are one to two years after the cross. Secondly, when it was discovered that the Gospels were most likely Greco-Roman bios, B-I-O-S, Greco-Roman biography, that's totally changed the field of, new, of the Gospel studies. And if the if the Gospels are Greco-Roman biographies, then you can investigate them the way ancient historians investigated Greco-Roman biographies, the criteria. How do you know Julius Caesar was assassinated? How do you know Alexander the Great conquered the world? Well, we have rules and sources. One of the biggest ones is multiple sources. So you look for those same rules in the Gospels, and those are called criteria. So the two big ones are creeds, they're very, very early statements, and criteria, things like we've already used examples. Examples of criteria criteria would be an early source, an eyewitness source, a source for which there's multiple attestation, a source which is very embarrassing, like saying the women were the uh, discoverers of the empty tomb, enemy attestation. For example, Marcus Borg, the co-founder of the Jesus Seminar, very skeptical. Marcus Borg said, we on historical grounds you cannot refute that Jesus was a miracle worker. And when you say, well, how do you know Jesus did miracles? He gives three reasons, and one of them is uh, multiple attestation. Every source we have says Jesus is a miracle worker. I don't mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I mean different genre. Which, well, I won't. I'll mess everybody up if I try to explain the sources. But every source says Jesus is a miracle worker. So criteria rules for history, and then the early creeds are how we evidence these different facts. Sorry, those two are heavy sets of explanations, but that's basically the building blocks we have for these facts. Sure. Uh, So so, um, 
let's next move into the evidences for the lives transformed and then also kind of dovetail from there into Paul's conversion. And right, you didn't ask me that, didn't you? No, that's okay. You went off on a tangent, but it was a good tangent. Well, I did because I couldn't give I, the reason. No, yeah, it wasn't even a tangent because I can't answer the transformation question. Sure, sure. Unless I tell them the kind of data I'm going to be using. Okay. And I said earlier that I'm only going to use data that critics accept. Well, those two deals say are the kind critics accept. All right, here's some examples. One species of creed is called the Acts Sermon Summaries. Uh-huh. And critics think that in the chapters, Acts 1 through 5, those are chapters, not verses, Acts 1 through 5, 10 and 13 are the chapters that have early sermon summaries. So we get windows into the earliest preaching. And all of those sermon summaries, and, and this is a heavy argument because there's multiple attestation here, there's many sources. And all the sermon summaries in Acts 1 through 5, 10 and 13, you can't name a sermon for which the resurrection is not the center, and you can't name a speaker who is, unless he's purported to be one of the disciples who did the witnessing coming out when Jesus died and uh, was raised. So just those creeds alone, you've got a bunch of men running around proclaiming their resurrection as the center of their faith. They put themselves in tough situations. I mean, you know, within those first few chapters, Stephen is killed, the, uh, the, the deacon. Chapter 12, James, now not James, the brother of Jesus, but James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, he's killed. So you have two deaths within the, before these creedal, before these ex-sermon summaries are passed, you have two deaths already. Then don't forget, it starts with Jesus' death in chapter one. He's, he's killed, of course. So that's three martyrdoms in the first dozen chapters. And so we know their lives are transformed. They put themselves in difficult situations. The disciples were captured. They were beaten. You go, well, yeah, if you take the book of Acts for granted. But the critics aren't taking the books of Acts for granted. They're using these little tiny creedal summaries inside the book of Acts. And you go, that sounds pretty conservative. And I'd say, tell you what, you go tell Bart Ehrman he's being conservative. You go tell him that. You go tell Gert Ludemann, the well-known German atheist. You go tell Bart Ehrman or Gert Ludemann. Bart Ehrman says the proclamation of the resurrection is one to two years after the cross. That's early. Garrett Ludeman says it cannot be later than Paul's list in 1 Corinthians 15. He says it cannot be later than three years later. Go, wait a minute. 1 Corinthians 15 is written about 22 years after the cross. Yeah, sorry. Go tell Garrett Ludeman, the atheist New Te- German New Testament scholar, that he's using his sources and he's really gullible. You go tell him that. Because that's how they do history, and I'm using their reasons. So these guys turned the world upside down. They were willing to die. They kept putting their head in the noose, so to speak. They went into trouble. Uh, there were three deaths, Jesus, Stephen, James, within the first 12 chapters. And the center of everything is the resurrection. So how wouldn't that be transformation centered on the resurrection? Yeah. And so what is the uh, significance of this point when trying to make the case that the resurrection is ac- actually true? Or that it did actually happen. Uh, okay, I missed something there, Braden. What is oh, the significance? Yeah. Of... So, how does the fact that their they their lives changed after Jesus' crucifixion indicate that they ah. uh, were uh, that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead? Very good. And because Christians are being pretty good, uh, I think it's because Christians are being pretty good at explaining this. We're not getting this old objection anymore. But the the objection would be, uh, hey, look. 
I know I know some Hindu buddies. I know some Buddhist buddies. I know some Muslim friends. I know some Jewish guys. I know some non-Christian communists. Everybody dies for their favorite, and there's two categories, usually religious or political ideas. A lot of people die for their favorite religious or political ideas. What's the difference? Why are you acting like the disciples are special? Here's the difference. If a, if a Hindu missionary, let's use an example. In Vietnam, a, a number of Buddhist priests set themselves on fire to protest the war, the war in Vietnam. That's very honorable if you're dying for your belief that war is wrong and American troops shouldn't be in the Middle East. I mean, the Far East in in uh, in uh, Vietnam. They died for that. They died willingly. That's honorable. But here's the point. Those Buddhist priests or Christians who may have died the same year or Muslims who may have died the same year, they all died for their belief that their founding principles are true. You know, Buddhists maybe are dying for what they believe are Buddhist beliefs. The Muslims for Muhammad's beliefs. The Christians for Jesus' beliefs. Here's the difference. Only the disciples died for what they saw, not just for what they believed. And only the disciples died for a resurrection that they saw. If these are the guys that claim to have seen the risen Jesus, remember the second fact is, they had experiences that they believe were appearances of the risen Jesus. They are the only ones. Muslims today can't tell you exactly what Muhammad said, and before anybody gets upset, Christians today can't tell you exactly what Jesus said. You go, read the red letter of the New Testament. I know, but it's in Greek. Jesus spoke in Aramaic. So it's, we're talking about the people who were there. What did they see? Right. And they died for the witnessing of the resurrection. We already talked about the resurrection being central. So that's what they died for. Yeah. So in other words, because the fact that they were uh, claiming to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection. The... And put their money where their mouth was because yeah. they're willing to die for that eyewitness claim. Yeah. Right. So these, um, you know, like uh, terrorists who blow themselves up today or something like that, um, they, they didn't see the historical... I don't know what the analogy is. They, they, believe, they believe their religion's true. Right. A lot of people today die for religion, and I'll even be way more magnanimous. I would say probably a lot of atheists have died for communism or, you know, other regimes because they are totally sold out to it and believe these things are true. Mm -hmm. Yes, the disciples were totally sold out to it. But the disciples died for what they saw. They turned the world upside down because they thought this man rose from the dead and entered heaven. And you go, not you, but I mean, people say, Haha, what's a, what a bunch of malarkey. What about other people who thought he was raised from the dead? Yeah, joke's on you. There no, there's no founder of any major world religion. No other world religion has a founder who believes, for whom the followers believe he was raised from the dead. No other founder of a major world religion claims that their founder claimed to be God. There's a lot of things that are really unique about Jesus, but what brings them all together is the resurrection event. Mm. Okay. So uh, moving on from there, what do you say to someone who tries to just circumvent the individual evidences? They don't try to object to you on them. Perhaps it's because they agree. Like you said, most people do agree on it. And yet uh, there are obviously a lot who don't follow the evidence to the resurrection. Right. Um, so what do you say to someone who says something like history 
history is about establishing what most probably happened in the past. Sure. And something like a resurrection, which would be miraculous, is by definition the a least probable occurrence. And whose definition would that be? Uh, a definition of what? You said by definition those events don't happen. Whose definition is that? Uh, so I'm thinking more. I'm thinking actually more specifically at Bart Ehrman in this case, who would say a, a miracle is by definition improbable. They, that um, they don't happen that often. So, um, okay. if um, right. how can well, you possibly go ahead? No, uh, there's a lot of ways to go after that. Um, I'm here's here's a couple of them. Um, critics don't like it, but uh, Craig Keener has written a, a very well known two volume uh, case on contemporary miracle cases. A lot of them are hearsay. He admits they're hearsay. Um, he's reporting stories, not necessarily proving them. But a number of the cases, you have to know where to look. These things are these. Are, it's a long. It's a lot of pages, two big volumes. I've got it somewhere. It's, it's very long. <laughs> I've got them right here. I'm, I'm looking at them right here on my shelf. Each one, each one is about, that's uh, even, they're even bigger than this. This is Dale Allison's book on the resurrection. He's a very well-known uh, critic. Um, each book is, is larger than this. And, and Craig doesn't even know, he's not an apologist. He doesn't even know how many miracle claims are in there, but I'm pretty sure there's over a thousand. Now, I've gone through that list. And I have counted the ones that have pre and post X-ray evidence, pre and post MRI evidence, pre and post CAT scan evidence, really good data. So number one, I, I'm just putting that out here. I'm not proving them right now yeah. on the air with you. But number one, maybe miracles occur today. Second argument, Bark, Marcus uh, Borg, the co-founder of the Jesus Seminar, said, he said, I don't, I don't know what your beliefs are on miracles. And he could be saying this to Ehrman, Marcus Borg, who's equally skeptical. But he says, I don't care what your beliefs are. But if you're willing to give an historical argument alone, he said, it is, I think these are his words, it is virtually indisputable to argue that Jesus wasn't a miracle worker. That's Marcus Borg. So, number one, there could be miracles today. Number two, Jesus could have done miracles. You could have these things. Number three, what about your presuppositions? I could have started there and said, how do you know those things don't happen? Right. Um, and, and here's one more, one, one more quick response. When people say to me, there's no world like that. There's no world where God lives. There's no world where there's an emerald city and a yellow brick road. I'm just yellow brick road all over this world. People follow paths, but there's no emerald city. How do we know that? And I'll give a fourth response, and that is, do you know anything about your death experiences? Because NDEs are the second topic that I've done the most research on, and the evidence today just had a published debate on it. There are over 300 evidenced NDEs. And if I told the examples, people would just say, what is this, a movie? Where do you get these cases? How about medical journals? Over 100 articles on NDEs have been published in medical journals and psychological journals. Over 100. Somebody's saying something about this data. You say, well, why are you getting off the subject? I'm not. If, if the evidence for NDEs is that there's an afterlife. And some of these argue very clearly for an afterlife. If there is an afterlife, then why are you objecting, to, not you, but why is a critic objecting to me saying a particular man named Jesus of Nazareth experienced the afterlife? He was raised from the dead. And when critics go, see, it's Bertrand Russell who said, atheism rests on two tenets. God doesn't exist and there's no afterlife. But if there's either a God or an afterlife, 
you can't make this argument work. So there's five, there's six responses right there to the view that says there's no miracles today. You can go on any of those. Uh, I like the I like the near death argument because if there's an afterlife, you have to let me have my say. By the way, I got a book sitting right here. Yeah. This this book right here, the science of near death experiences. This is a bunch of medical journal articles published by the University of Missouri Publishing House, not. Tom Frank and Bill Evangelical printers from the local Baptist church. This is University of Missouri Press with journal articles. You know how they how the book starts? It's called The Science of Near-Death Experiences. The book starts like this. Up to 20 million Americans are believed to have had near-death experiences in their life. So if you tell me, hey, there's something wrong with your argument because there's no world like that where there's an afterlife, I'd say, hey, right here, Talk to these twenty, but talk to these twenty million people, okay, and tell me what you think later. So, see, a lot of these kind of mythical, we don't know that, you can't prove that. We can Those views are being exploded today. This is a religious generation. There's a lot of religious information out there. So I'd go after that miracle claim. I just gave you six responses to it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so, um, what has been one of the strongest objections to your minimal facts argument, or just? Uh, your argumentation for the resurrection in general, uh, whether in debate or if you think you yourself have thought of the strongest objection because you're a habitual doubter like myself. I know I, I, I sometimes think, and I know this is arrogant, so you, you take it with a grain of salt to the listener. But I sometimes think I can make the opposing argument better, but go ahead. Yes, I do that all the time. I think that to myself, Braden. I think. Christians don't want me to debate with them because I'm going to prove an alternative case. Well, you know, all that shows is you're going to be debating with people who don't know the data. Because people who know the data, you're going to be in a bind. I would say the number one objection to my minimal facts, I just gave it. I'd say the number one objection is you need two things to be right. I only need one thing to be right. I only have to know that naturalism is true and this is the only world there is. You need good evidence for a resurrection and good evidence for another world that will eventually go into heaven, what you can call the Emerald City. You have to prove the Yellow Brick Road and the Emerald City. I only have to use my Yellow Brick Road, which is naturalism, and no supernatural things happen on the Yellow Brick Road, unless you get to the Emerald City, which, of course, we know it's a fairy tale. That's probably the big, the, the biggest comeback today. But by the way, Braden, you know why people take that explanation? Hmm. First of all, they get Christians off balance. They don't ex Christians don't expect them to come around the back corner. Right, with a philosophical, yeah. But here's the other reason they do that. You can't make naturalistic theories work. Naturalistic theories are bad. Critics, you notice something? Most of those who take naturalistic theories are older New Testament scholars who are dying off. The younger breed... They don't pick naturalistic theories, by and large. You know why? They don't work. What's uh, what's another non-naturalistic theory uh, aside from the resurrection? Well, okay, I'll give you, I'll give you a couple because I just finished it. You know, I'm doing a magnum opus on the resurrection right now. I'm getting close to being done. It's almost 5,000 pages long on the resurrection. <laughs> and I just finished a chapter on that question you just asked. There are a couple of theories that admit the resurrection, but not the whole Christian focus. And one of them says 
Jesus really appeared to the disciples. Okay, here's what the one view says. And it's very popular among critics. It used to be more popular a few decades ago, but it's still very popular. It goes like this. Jesus died on the cross. He was really raised from the dead, and he really appeared to the disciples. But he appeared as a disembodied spirit. Mm. They couldn't touch him. They didn't see him eat. But he was in the room. And the re- and you go, well, how do you know there's evidence? Yeah, man, dude, you're stupid. You believe in ghosts. Well, really, what do you think if you were in a room, these Ghostbuster shows, you know, where people do it? What if there were 10 people in the room and they all saw the ghost? Yeah. What if they saw the ghost pick up a hairbrush and move it across the room and set it down on the counter? What if you got your phone out real fast and you got the tail end of the ghost picking up the... There's some really strange things out there. So this view says, okay, Jesus was raised. He was really raised. He didn't appear bodily. And you have to go after the bodily nature of it. Um, I could give you other ones. but th- Yeah, but yeah. That no, that, that's, that's a kind of more that's obvious that. one. I, I don't know why I didn't think of it, but yeah. Um, so but if you're gonna have, here, that's a problem. You got a resurrection in that deal. You right. have a resurrection, but that that guy just went off on a lot of the biblical data, and he doesn't like the gospel stuff where Jesus said, "Here, touch me," and Mary held him by the legs, and the women held him by the legs. They don't have that stuff, and they go, yeah, "I don't believe it. I think he was like a spirit." Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, but that that's here's the point. The, the data are so good, they're admitting a resurrection. You know what? They admit that they admit. A resurrection. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so if, if you had to pick an alternative explanation, uh, which one would you go with? I wouldn't go with one of them. See, Bart Ehrman says in one of our recent books, I think I think it's fair to say he used to teach the he used to take the hallucination theory. In one of his latest books, he says, I'm not going to go there. In fact, he says, I'm not going to take a naturalistic theory. And you go, why wouldn't you pick a naturalistic theory? He says, because I know what evangelicals are going to do. He said, I used to be one of them. Here's what they're going to do. They want, the ones who really know their stuff, they want you to pick a naturalistic theory because you're going to be in the corner in no time with the data. So I'm not going to give them a chance to put me in the corner. I'm not going to pick a theory. So he takes that option you gave earlier, miracles don't happen. Now, I'd like somebody to prove miracles don't happen. They don't happen. What do you do with pre and post MRIs, pre and post CAT scans, pre and post... There's some incredible cases. What do you do with Jesus as a miracle worker? What do you do with there's NDEs and a afterlife? If there's a God, there's another whole approach we haven't talked about. If there's a God, God can raise the dead. So you better not let God exist if you don't want to believe in the resurrection. So there's a lot of comebacks on the, the miracles trail. I wouldn't pick a natural thing, not, not against a good guy. If I was picking a guy who didn't know what he was talking about, um, I think I could make half of them work. Yeah. But somebody knows what they're talking about, I wouldn't want to look like an idiot. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me uh, tonight, uh, Dr. Habermas. Before we get to the bonus segment, five more minutes with Dr. Habermas. And again, I want to, or uh, before we do that, actually, I want to say thank you to our patron supporters. And uh, you can access the bonus segment by going to the Patreon link. Uh, in the description below and becoming a supporter of the show and you not only get access to the bonus segment with Dr. Habermas but all the bonus segments with all of my interviewees. Uh, Dr. Habermas, before we uh, get to the bonus segment, one last question. What advice would you offer to someone who, a Christian who is having doubts about their faith? Doubt seems to be something that you and I both um, hold in common, uh, both having had experienced a substantial amount of doubt but also taking it seriously and not brushing it off and telling people to just have faith or and whatnot but uh, uh, what would you say to somebody who's experiencing a lot of doubt about their christian faith right now um first of all because i can't say everything in five minutes 
Um, I've written three books on doubt. I'm not trying to sell anything to prove that. On my website, GaryHabermas.com, two of the three books, they're all out of print, all three, but two of the three books are there free. So they can download um, either the um, Thomas Factor, which is subtitled Using Your Doubts to Grow Closer to God, and a book called, it's a book, that one was Robin Holman. The other one is Dealing with Doubt. That's a moody book. And I have a third one on Why is God Silent? I don't have that one on the website yet, but it's The Silence of God, Tyndale. Two of those three books are available free. And I will say two things. Number one, for factual doubters, those who think they can disprove something that's integral to the Christian faith, I would say there's a there's a crucial mistake factual doubters usually make. They go after periphery things. They do things like this. Uh, hey, I don't know what to do with those genocide passages in the Old Testament. Or, you know, I got a buddy who's a young earther. Or, I got a buddy who's an old earther. And I don't think either one of them can prove. How do I prove their view? You know, did Adam and Eve live? I don't know. What astrological view do you like? And they go off on these things that they think they're going to debate on. How about eternal security? Are you a Calvinist? And they go with these things that are kind of important, but they don't change anything. So for factual doubters, I want to make a really important statement. If Jesus taught he was deity, if he died on the cross for sin, if he was raised from the dead, then, and this, they got to hear this, Christianity is true. Yeah, but there's genocide. No, you're not listening. If Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, if he died on the cross for our sins, he was raised from the dead. That's Christianity. Well, yeah, but what about the views? Don't give me that. There are over 50 books in print that are called, every Christian, everyone who studies knows these, three, four, and five views books. The reason Christians have so many views is because it's okay. We can hold different views. But if Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead, guess what? There's a yellow brick road and there's an emerald city, and you can go there. So that, for the factual doubter, I'd say major in the major, don't major in the minor. All right, second principle. Most doubt, according to research, most doubt is emotional. Especially men think their doubts are factual because I'm not an emotional guy. Well, look again. All of us get emotional at certain times over certain things. You break up with your girlfriend. Uh, you know, you you. A deer hits your car, you know, and you're madder than a hornet. I mean, things happen and you get emotional. We get worked up over things and we say it's factual, but here's how you know it's not factual. If you go, well, how do I know the disciples really saw Jesus? And Habermas gives you 15 reasons. You go, well, could Habermas be wrong? That's an emotional question. It's not, could Habermas be wrong? The question is, is Habermas wrong? Are the data wrong. If they're not, you need to decide whether you're going to dance with this person or not. You're going to, you know, in the words of the song, you have to decide if you're going to say I do to Jesus. Yeah, well, I don't know. What if I didn't get something right here? What, look at, what if the earth is flat and you didn't get it right? See, those are emotional doubts. So for the emotional doubter, I'd say this is very, very important. Don't keep putting logs on the factual logs on the fire and they're not going to make you warm. The problem with factual doubt for an emotional doubter is you're not telling your emotions where to stop being emotions. You have to train your emotions with the data. And and I can't say it in five minutes. There are great books out there. One book I'd recommend is a book called Telling Yourself the Truth. 
It is teaching principles that are known in the psychology is cognitive principles or cognitive behavioral principles. And you train your emotions to only be accorded to the facts. So I'd say those are two tricks of the trade. Number one, stay on board. Don't worry about whether you're a Calvinist or Arminian and scream at everybody who's not your view. Stay on on focus. Is Jesus the Son of God, done the cross, no sins, raised from the dead? If he is, have fun with your buddies about Arminianism and and, and uh, Calvinism. But if you're on the yellow brick road, just make sure you don't get off and keep going to the Emerald City. Okay, secondly, train your emotions and be strong enough to be to have a wall against emotions. Don't think it's all coming at you from the facts. All right. Well, again, thank you so much uh, for joining me, uh, Dr. Habermas. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show uh, today. Uh, Again, if you want to listen to the bonus segment, Five More Minutes with Dr. Habermas, just follow the Patreon link in the description below and become a supporter if you're not already. Dr. Habermas, thank you so much for joining me, sir. Enjoyed it, Braden. Thanks for your question. You did a great job. Yeah.